It's funny, like in the NBA, there's the phrase of the fake hustle and how many guys want to look busy and want to do stuff all the time when it's not really productive, mm. right? And so to me, it's about building the right habits in of like, when do, when do I focus on recovery, in particular mental recovery? When do I unplug from the stress and anxiety that's coming at us all the time and learning how to do that, developing good habits around knowing when to shut things down, knowing when not take things personally, knowing when there are certain areas that are out of your control and allowing them not to affect you, I think is, is most important. Hi, I'm Eric Corum, and this is The Blueprint. I've spent my life helping Olympic gold medalists, NFL and NCAA athletes be the best at their craft. Now I'm taking that experience and translating it into your life. This podcast is for busy professionals and household CEOs who care deeply about their family, career, and their health. There's an ocean of content to wade through, but I do the heavy lifting for you and distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your lifestyle and goals. Dave Tinney is the High Performance Director for Austin FC and has spent almost two decades in professional sports serving in various roles, including the High Performance Director for the Orlando Magic and the Sports Science and Performance Manager for the Seattle Sounders Football Club. I've known Dave for almost 10 years, and he is one of the premier thought leaders in human performance. In this episode, we discuss his research in organizational leadership, complex systems, and the future of sports science. Hey everyone, I have one request for you today. Please take 30 seconds and go to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review for our show. This is the number one thing you can do to help support our show and help it grow. My goal is to get to 150 reviews in the next two months. And with your help, I know we can do this. But before we get to my interview with Dave, I want to launch you in on an exclusive free offer just for you. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping it will help you achieve your wellness goals. And guess what? It ends up in the sock drawer. Sound familiar? Or how about this? You follow those cookie cutter clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day. And all you get is anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit that magic number. It's time for an evolution of expectation and results. And that's where AIM 7 comes in. AIM 7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce your stress, or lose weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch data, then go to www.aim7.com. That's A-I-M-7.com to get early and free access to our exclusive program. AIM 7 starts small and starts with you. Your health data to get to your values, to get to your thriving life. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Dave, it's great to have you here today, man. Thanks for having me. All right. So this podcast, we talk a lot about high performance, but you were one of the first high performance directors in the United States. Like you've, you've really kind of set the path for a lot of us in this field. Can you tell our listeners, like, what does it mean to be a director of high performance? Good question. <laughs> um, because I think it's, um, it's something that evolved over time. And I think that's what we, you know, when, as I talk to people trying to get in the field, I never say like, I set out to be a high performance director. That was never a, a goal of mine necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, cause I think we, you know, and me, me and you kind of evolved through the, 
the the profession you know roughly parallel and um and for a while it was all about sports science and then sports science kind of evolved into high performance and um it's really about and and I'm and I know we're going to talk about this interdisciplinary multidisciplinary the the really trying to get all these groups of silos together on the same page functioning together um asking the right questions and then answering the right questions and hopefully leading to different questions you know i think that's probably where i would start in terms of what is high performance it's when it comes to to the performance of athletes teams organizations that you're you're asking the right questions to get the right answers to then make good decisions mm. and it's amazing that this hadn't existed in us sport until what's like 15 years ago really yeah you would think it would sound so fundamental to get everybody on the same page. Yeah. And I think it's because, I mean, if, if we're really brutally honest, a lot of sports in this country, when it came to sports science, medicine, strength conditioning, like they were very understaffed. Right. So it's really small groups of people that could kind of do their own thing. Again, you have like the you know, 20 years ago in the NBA, you've got a, an athletic trainer and a strength coach and, Maybe the athletic trainer has an assistant and they do their thing. And they were really kind of just part of the coaching staff in yeah. a sense. Yeah. So high performance has existed within maybe, I mean, you wouldn't have put the name on it, but the head coach was pretty much yeah, the curator of the culture and they still are. Yeah. But they were getting everybody on the same page, but as these um, support staff, other jobs began to proliferate in numbers. Now you had a need, you'd have maybe 10 people over and, in sports medicine, like in the NFL, we had maybe yeah. five to 10 people and you got X number of people in strength conditioning and psychology, nutrition and all these other things. And all of a sudden you got all these other people that can kind of be pulling the rope in different directions. Yeah. yeah. Unintentionally. Yeah. And I think what happened, well, first you saw Olympic, Olympic national organizations investing in this, in this realm. Cause you've had, you know, again, if you use example of us ski or right? us ski and snowboard is pretty far ahead of the curve and bring in Troy Flanagan from Australia to lead all of their teams and, and really put everything under one roof. Right? Right. So I think you first saw it with national sporting organizations supporting Olympic athletes. That's where you first start, saw this beginning of this high performance model. Mm -hmm. Um, because you had a group of medical staff, strength coaches, sports scientists supporting a huge number of athletes. And then I think over time in Australia and then in, in, in England, in the premier league, you started seeing, okay, they're going to downsize this model and, and, and apply it to individual pro teams. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't take too long until, okay, over here in the U S they're going to start at first, obviously bringing in people from Australia and from England to kind of run those same type high performance models here. How, how did that work out very well in the beginning? Because I don't think it did with people from other countries coming in and running. Now, Troy is a different example, yeah. but I found there was a lot of like disconnect in cultures. Yeah, I think one of the important points, U.S. sport is so different, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have um, the CBA and you have agents and you have the draft process. And then I think just the, the amount of money, right? The more money that the, the athletes make in salaries, then... You know, there's the more issues and problems you have to deal with, you mm -hmm. know, to manage. Um, and, it, and so it's a really, really big difference having 40 Australian rugby players who are all making a couple hundred thousand a year 
to a group of NBA athletes making 10 plus million who have an agent that's going to dictate what they want. And their agent has their own doctors and therapists, et cetera. And, and that's, that's just a different animal to manage. Yeah. And you've, you've, you've done this in major league soccer and you've done it in the NBA. I mean, so you, even there, there's a big difference in yeah. pay structure, yeah. power dynamics. Um, what is the, I mean, I know now you're doing, you're getting your PhD in leadership. Is there a reason why you chose leadership instead of like, I don't know, something yeah. in physiology? Yeah. Yeah. It's a organizational leadership and development because again, we're one of the main roles of the high performance director is to lead and manage a, a department. Mm-hmm. Right. And so again, as you know, uh, you know, a dissertation or PhD is really getting super granular from a detail, you know, in, in one particular area. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as, as I've gone through, I've really found that hiring, organizing, training people is really important. I think it's something that, I mean, I strive to get better at every day. Um, staffs also get bigger. There's generational differences. Now it's a lot different managing a, a millennial or Gen Z employee than it is, a you know, someone our age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually like just doing the work to study on those things, I think is really, really important. That makes total sense. So one of the things that you've been delving deep into is complex systems. You want to talk about what a complex system is? <laughs> <laughs> My family. Well, I mean, I, I think there's this whole almost like philosophical perspective on complex systems thinking, right? I would say it's more a way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. That, that everything, everything you see or do has interactions that affect it, mm-hmm. right? That's the, the price of gasoline <laughs> comes from a complex system, right? Yeah. But the whole OPEC thing today, I yeah. saw like what's going on overseas versus what's going on here versus supply demand. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really, it it's a it's a groups interacting with each other and how what happens downstream is affected by what happened one decision made by one group that didn't appear to interact with the other ends up having some real downstream effects that i think people don't really understand and and then and then i think there's this concept of um self organizing and emergence that happens right so two of the big you know principles of of um uh, Complex systems are self-organization, which just happens in teams. Mm-hmm. And, um, so and what does that emergence. look like? What so, does self-organization look like? I think each each group of people that work together create their own set of, they create their own culture. Mm-hmm. They create their own accepted behaviors, rules of engagement, ways of thinking, mm-hmm. ways of problem solving. Every team you put together whether it be on the field or off the field in sports, like they're, they're trying to problem solve. Mm-hmm. And so how, how groups peel apart different issues and problem solve depends on the strength of that group. Um, and then, then that goes into, you know, elements of cognitive diversity, right? The, you want people that understand each other, that can challenge each other, but also think a little bit differently. And so, you know, it, it's that whole process. I think is it's a, it's a complex, a complex system in terms of how, how you end up, arriving at these thoughts, bouncing ideas off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and that's just at a team level, right? You can argue then from a, there's a 
physiologically, like we're biologically, it's a complex system as well. And what I eat might affect my physical performance, clearly a uh, complex system. Mm-hmm. How I move as I come back from an injury and as you see athletes' complex systems in themselves as they they age over time and how their bodies change and what happens and they get this degenerative issue in, in, in a knee which might affect movement somewhere else and then then something else wears out and then one of the other principles of complex systems is a tipping point something changes and it never goes back right so um clearly there's we see that physically like there's oh the yeah state of a joint where something changes yeah i was just then, thinking joints because yeah. that's i'm getting in my 40s now and i'm starting to feel that tipping point in yeah. certain things it's funny i've been listening a lot to uh the guy david martin is uh was with the 76ers. So he was high performance director yeah. for 76ers for a while. And I believe his undergrad was in something like zoology. What's he doing now? Um, not sure. He's, okay. he's working for, he's on the West coast somewhere, okay. but, but obviously was brilliant, brilliant person worked for the AIS in Australia mm-hmm. um, with their cyclists for years as an American working with Australia and Australian sports science. Um, and he would he would equate what we do in high performance to what he learned in zoology and which is you know ecological dynamics and and um if you go to a uh a river and you take the foxes out of the environment, the whole river changes right right or if you take the snakes out, everything changes right and that mm-hmm. whole that whole concept of all the animals have their own certain roles and what happens with the uh within that environment. And if you take one animal out, it changes radically the actual structure around the river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think sometimes we are the same, but I, I don't think we, we always think about it like that. And I've been thinking about this, like in terms of high performance, just adding something like a psychologist, you had a sports psychologist and it changes the room. It changes <laughs> subtly the way people think. You seen Ted Lasso? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when they added a sports yes, psychologist, yeah, yeah. it changed things. Yeah. Um, so I think again, that, and that's where it goes back. You had a nutritionist, right? Mm-hmm. You had a nutritionist. It changes, it changes the discussions and it changes ultimately the way people behave, the way people make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, I just don't always think we're, we're aware of that, I guess. Yeah. One, one little change to the ecosystem can have a ripple effect. Yeah. You know, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is clarity and how to create clarity in an organization, because you have some people at the top that make these decisions yeah. like yourself, the head football coach, um, his staff. And then like there's people down the line. And if those things aren't clearly translated and everybody isn't on the same board on the same page about like values and how we behave and all that kind of stuff, it creates dissension. What do you think about creating clarity? How do you do that? I would say in my nature, that's not, that's something I'm still working to get better at, to be honest. Okay. Um, why is that? Do you mind getting introspective for a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that, again, I am a, I think I take a very philosophical view of things. And, and I like, again, from a complex system standpoint, I feel like how many times you hire people for a job, you hire a group of people for a job. And if you go and you say, I'm going to create clarity right away, I'm going to make your role perfectly defined, your role, your role, your role. We're all going to be, we're all going to know what each other do and all roles are going to be super clear. But you evolve and change and I might not know it. You might be better at X than I thought you were. Mm-hmm. And this person I thought was going to be really good at Y, but he's actually not as good as I thought. This person Z 
he's not great yet, but he's learning really fast. In about six months, he's going to be able to master whatever Z is. Mm -hmm. And that's always going to subtly shift and change our roles slightly. Mm -hmm. And that's how I prefer to work is like, we're going to get in a room. I'm going to see everyone's strengths and weaknesses. And over time, if we looked every six months down the road, how we work, how we operate, how we do things is always going to be shifting and evolving and changing, mm -hmm. which can create lack of clarity. People like to know right now, like, what's my role? Mm -hmm. Tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I think some, some leaders are good at that. It can lead, I think, to rigidity at times. Mm -hmm. But I know, I know I, I need to do a better job really clearly delaying roles, mm -hmm. making roles super clear. But also I, you know, you know, and, and you, you, me and you met when I was in uh, Seattle, I was with Seattle Sounders nine years. And I felt that was a great environment for how that department and way of working and how we did things over a nine year period. It just rapidly changed, evolved and people grew and um, got confident in their skills. We had this great kind of like 80, 20 rule. We're like, okay, every year we're going to throw out 20% of what we do and, and bring 20% new in and, and just really see what works. And uh, it was super healthy and that really worked. And I never felt like we actually had to say like, this is clearly your role and this is your role. And we all have perfect clarity here just so we know. But do you think that grew over time? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because you guys evolved as an organization that these, like everybody was kind of doing a little bit more and a little bit more. Who was your assistant's name again? Was it Ravi? Yep. Yeah. What's he up to now? Ravi is now, uh, he's a, I think he's, he's like VP of analytics and performance, I think for, uh, Sounders. Wow. Cause yeah. he came from Microsoft, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, so like you were, you were doing some pretty amazing stuff. And so like when you're, when you're innovating, it's like, there is a bit of ambiguity, Yeah, but now you go into this situation where like, it's a little bit more established. People are a little more or a lot more aware of what this is now. Yeah, And I can just see that as being, um, it's like one of the biggest challenges, especially as the organization grows. Something I've been leaning into a lot is I have a startup now and I'm thinking about the future. Yeah. Like how do we create clarity? And that's just a, a very difficult thing to do, but you got to kind of have, and for me, it starts with core values. And then like, this yeah. is, our, this is our mission. These are yeah. our core values. These are the behaviors associated with those values. And then like, uh, the next thing is I've been working on any, anyways, the point being is like, if the, we have that little foundation. Yeah. Like right now, everybody in my organization kind of does a little bit of everything, Yeah. but I could see when, you, when you're in your world, like information is power. Yeah. And everybody wants to know what's going on. And so how do you make sure that people stay informed so they don't feel left out? There's less anxiety and they, they can feel freed up to do their job. Yeah, I think that that's my follow up to your point about people really wanting clarity. Uh -huh. I think the starting point is, is trust. Okay. Right? Like I think that you have to have a group of people that once you trust each other, then you don't hang on to like having to have that clarity. I think mm -hmm. like I'm okay that either you're going to do it or I'm going to do it. And one of us is, is, you know, one of us will take care of whatever task it might be. Um, but I don't need to know because we trust each other and we know that, you know, okay, I, I know how you think, you know, how I think, and if you can step in tomorrow and do something or I'll do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have trust, you want to know, I want, then I want someone to tell me. 
right? So, you know, again, and that goes back to hopefully one of your values is trust. I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really important you know value to have in your organization. But um, to me, I think that's, that's where maybe it's, organizations can feel really rigid, overly defined, overly, um, almost like overstructured, um, if there's kind of a lack of, of trust. That makes sense. One of the key things that you have to do in your role is make decisions, (laughs) like important decisions. And, uh, you and the head coach usually, I don't know how your dynamic looks like, but you know, in this role, you're, you're bringing information and saying, Hey, this is my suggestion. This is how I feel. Yeah. Or, you know, it depends on every organization. How do you have like specific mental models that you use for decision-making? And then also how do you go about assessing yeah. your decisions after you've made them? I think first it goes back again, most sporting organizations, it's the the head coach, the head coach and GM are the two most most important decision makers, most powerful people in the organization. Um, understanding how they think and how they make decisions is is very critical to that whole, beginning that whole process, mm-hmm. right? And so we're talking about people that have failed sometimes in these roles. And I think sometimes people f- have failed in these roles because they don't really understand how the head coach makes decisions and they step over top and want to you know tell them what they think should happen. And the head coaches really want to hear that. And some of those, those, those stays at those clubs can be really short lived, you know, if the <laughs> head coach doesn't really want to hear them. Um, to me, the, the starting point is always disagreement with the coach. And I was, in most head coaches, I'll always start with, listen, when it comes to what you want to do tomorrow or the next day, you can do anything you want. You can do anything. We're going to take our group out of the field. You can do anything you want, as long as we have the understanding that we might have to adjust for whatever you do tomorrow. That's a good way of putting it. Now, if you if if you have so much stuff you want to do and you've overloaded physically and mentally all of our players, and then two days from now, we have to really cut back on what we do, we have to agree, like, we're good with that. We can do that. If we can't agree on that, if we can't agree that every day we're going to walk out and you're going to do whatever you want to do, well, then... Why am I here? Right. Right. So there's stuff you want to get done. I want to help you accomplish that. So really, I'm obviously, it's a supporting role. I want to help you to accomplish whatever it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we work together to you know optimize the team for the game coming up. But whatever you want to do tomorrow must be then followed up by something we agree is appropriate. We're going to take a break for just a moment to talk about how you can get exclusive content designed for high performers just like you. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. Now, back to the show. I really wish I had that advice a long time ago. <laughs> so really what it ends up is a perpetual state of review. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And that, and to me, again, when we go into the, the, the whole technology side and all the data we're collecting from all the technology that's available, it's essentially everyday review. And, and this constant, what I think head coaches in sports, what they need that hopefully their assistant coaches are also giving them and that we give them from the sports science side is, okay, the practice happened, the game happened, 
there's what you thought happened. And then let's look at what did, did really what you thought happened actually happen? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause how many times almost inevitably, and you know, if, if you work in pro sports, a lot of times you and you inevitably know that when you think the team played really, really well and they're great, you go back and you watch the video like, Oh, they weren't as good as they thought. And then when you lose and the coaches are pissed and they're angry and they just want to, and then they go watch the video, like, you know, we weren't actually as bad as I thought. We were actually pretty good. Yeah. Right. It, it's the emotions you, the most people carry when they're watching the game live and making decisions within the game, the emotions change their, their ability to be really objective. Um, and so all good coaches, I find all go back and they, they actually are good at letting go of that original emotion while they're watching the game and then forming a whole new opinion of what actually happened when they look at mm. post post game video data that comes out of the game to really help them understand what happened. Do you think that the best coaches are actually even more calm during the game itself? I just think about the coaches that, that I've been around that are yeah. really good. They have a sense of calm because they can actually process. Like I always just think of Bill Belichick. People yeah. are like, Belichick is so, you know, blah. No, the dude is trying to think. Yeah. He's not trying to react. And yes, there's emotion, but there's other sports. You know what I'm yeah. saying? We're yeah. like, the coach really won't, all the work's been done. Yeah. There's just a little knob that needs to be turned depending on the game. And they're trying to keep their mind clear so they can think. Yeah. They're trying to be as objective as possible and, yes. and less clouded by emotions. I mean, I, you know, again, I think that there's, there's probably an art to coaching of being able to inject some positive emotion in your yes. team when, when they need it. So it's not as if emotions are bad, of course, but there's, there's the ability to maintain objectivity. I think that's, that's important. Like Pete Carroll's a great example. Yeah. Very upbeat, positive guy. But if you watch him during the game, he's not like just screaming and yelling and doing yeah. all sorts of things. There was a period of time. I know my in football where I was at, where I was like, these people were administrators or whatever. Like, I want a passionate coach because they saw somebody that was passionate that was doing well. But then they didn't really watch the other 95% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a baseball coach that goes out and gets thrown out of a game when something happens because he knows that that's the right move to make at the time. Yeah. But the other 98% of the time, they're not losing their mind in the dugout yeah. or become a distraction. I think it's about, it's something I think you learn as you get older, the ability to be strategic, right? So I think strategic thinking is very undervalued at times. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes it's uh, learning that you need to lose a battle to win the war. You know, like that's very strategic if you do that, you know, uh, purposefully. Mm-hmm. Um and that I'm thinking, you know, sometimes of the, you know, the basketball coach that purposely gets thrown out of the game, you know, to yes. try to give some emotional injection to his team. And, um, you know, and I think that's what, that's what I learned in, you know, in, in the NBA and in, in the three years there was the, the coaches, the really good coaches over an 82 game regular season. And then the playoffs, the, the best ones, they're, they're so strategic in how they manage this group within this game within the next game. And I think again, you know, it's funny, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was the same, you know, in football, if you have a loss, it's like this huge thing, right? This, you know, it's, and 
you're not allowed to be happy from like Sunday through <laughs> Wednesday, right? Like everyone has to walk around miserable just to show you're invested, right? Yeah. Like there's, there can be places like, like that in football and, you know, and soccer can be the same because there's just not as many games. Right. right. And then, um, uh, and then you have the NBA where you might play the next night. You might play three games in the next four days. And the really good coaches I was around there were literally from the walk post game in the locker room. Like they're already like switched. Okay. Let's worry about the next game. And there was a couple times, like some emotional outbursts and, but it was so rare because there are such strategic thinkers that are already thinking about what's going to happen the next game. Let's speak about the NBA season. You know, you, you, you know, if people think performance training and they always think recovery, right. But with the NBA, you're flying all the time on these crazy schedules like what what are some sciencey things you learned in your time in the NBA that you've kind of like walked away and was like that was that was interesting you like the word sciencey yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean you always know recovery is to me I think what I learned in the NBA was really bigger picture longitudinally right where you know these guys come in now at 19 20 21 years old these young kids in a lot of ways who should be college sophomores they come in and because our youth play so much basketball, so much AU basketball, just the level of degeneration that some of these guys come in with is shocking, right? Patella tendon, Achilles tendon, ankles, just they're playing so much. And then, you know, what these guys look like at 23, 24 years old and how you actually then put together the staff from the medical side, strength conditioning side, you know, and having high level people there managing these tendon and, and joint degenerative changes is, uh, was, was not something that you see in soccer at all. Like you so don't see you... a soccer player with patella degeneration, like some young NBA guys can have already. Really? Even though they play a lot. Yeah. Is it because of the surface? Yeah. So, how do these guys end up having these long careers then with 80 something? Games? I think it's, it's, it's the really special guys that really take care of themselves and mm-hmm. the ones that have those longer, those longer, uh, careers. what's the average career in the NBA at the NFL? It was like yeah, two to three years. Yeah, It's probably four to five years. Okay. I'm but, guessing purely guess. Okay. Cause the NFL, the guys called it not for long. Yeah. Right. Cause those guys were just chewed up and yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, Wow, that's really and it's the same with the NFL. I mean, obviously, these guys that the the, the physical toll on the athletes is so high, mm-hmm. and and with the basketball, it's it's the ability to do a day after day after day, and you know some of these guys want to be on the court, you know, two hours a day and shooting forever. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, getting shots up. I was about to say getting up shots. And, yeah, and, <laughs> So what were the commonalities of the best ones that you're around? Have you seen, like you've worked in, in soccer, football, mm-hmm. and you've worked in the NBA. Have you, what are there some commonalities between these great athletes that you see there? It's like, you know, I, I saw that there yeah. and I see that here. It's a clear commitment to health recovery. I mean, it's the, the, the really, really top guys in terms of, and again, the MLS athlete is different from the NBA athlete. You probably have to work in English Premier League and, and the NBA to get the similarities, but you know, guys are willing to invest in their own massage therapists, their own physical therapists, 
they have doctors on standby. There's um, dietitians, nutritionists. They're getting you know blood work on their own. Um, just the level of of detail they go into. Um, most you know most NBA guys have their own chefs, right? So if you're willing to invest in yourself significantly, it does pay off in the end, mm. which I think is valuable. I mean, I think I think that's. You know, and that's what you're seeing now in, in, you know, in the English Premier League as well, where these guys have their own chefs, their own therapists that live with them, you know, or or, or you know, travel around with them, and uh, they got an entourage. Yeah, which is also the same reason why these high performance groups have grown so significantly so quickly, because um, the average NBA team can have three physical therapists for 15 players, so they can just work on constantly. Yeah. How are you seeing performance science or this field changing? It's trying to have technology that captures data without the players having to do anything special. There you go. Right. So it's wearable devices. It's GPS have gotten smaller. GPS, you know, uh, player tracking devices have gotten smaller, uh, You've got obviously, you know, uh, velocity-based training where you're measuring bar speed and um, when when guys are in the gym with just a push of a button. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got your your aura rings and you know different sleep monitoring and sports technology has gone down that road of really figuring out. You know, you, you, we still use force plates, right? I think mm-hmm. um, force plate data is really important. But, you know, is that next level going to be, okay, you're going to put these insoles in your shoes. You're going to go sprint a little bit. We're going to get all the information we need from that. Seamless data collection yeah. with minimal, like, perturbation to yeah. their life. Yeah. yeah. It's less it's less invasive. It's more a part of what they do. It's something that can be rolled in the beginning of practice. And we're going to, you're going to wear this accelerometer and you're going to look at right-left asymmetry in your running gait. We're going to be able to tell this from from you wearing these different... Uh, accelerometry devices and, you know, and, and, and you're just going to play normally and we'll just collect everything at the end of practice. Do you have somebody on your staff that's like a data scientist with experience in like machine learning? Uh, yeah. So I hired Corey Jez is actually, uh, was here at, uh, from Austin. He was with the Utah jazz as a mm-hmm. director of analytics for, uh, three years, I think. Um, and again, manage our database because you know the, the next step as people want to use more data, teams, organizations want to use more data. It's really uh, centralizing all your data. Mm-hmm. Right? Where's all the data go? Who's managing it? Um, what sort of dashboards are you looking at it through? Do you have a, a club-wide platform you're using? And um, and then if you're wearing something that's measuring your running plus your heart rate, and they're two different technologies, can you sync those? You know the data. Um, and clean the data in an effective way, match the timestamps up. You know, there's obviously all those things that you, again, if you, you know, use an API, so it's just automatically uploads to your, to your own database. And, and then how do you get that to a coach yeah. in like one sheet of paper? Yeah, that is, that is the <laughs> trick. That is the trick. Yeah. And I think sometimes, and then, then there's the data. And I think what, what people miss sometimes that I, I always make the point of there's, there's always the data you collect as a sports scientist. There's data that that we're collecting over the course of the day. Then there's always the interpretation of the data. Right? Mm. That's and where decisions are made are the interpretations of the data. Right? Yes, man. I've seen so many things. Like in football, I can remember like we would look at date. Like for instance, when Catapult came out, right? Yeah. Um, 
certain coaches, like I would be like, okay, let's quantify the game of football first. Yeah. I was like, understand what's happening. Let's see if our training matches the demands of the game. And then let's, how, look, let's, let's look at how we're managing. And then I would hear about these other places several years later after they started using it. And it was like, oh, let's just push them as hard as they can. And let's reward the people that do the absolute most work. Yeah. And you're like, you got the same data. Yeah. And that's where like a data without insight is completely useless. Yeah. So. But that goes back to the point of, of using the data to say, this is what you thought happened. Yeah. Now let's, let's look at what really happened. Right. So every day, you know, the guys come off the practice field, we download all their data, then upload it to our platform, look at it and really ask the questions of, okay, this is what we thought happened. Did it really happen? We thought, we thought we hit a perfect, but. Maybe guys did less than we thought they did, hmm. right? Because and and then also, there's the whole the, you know the next level of technology is your your real time tracking, right? Some data is great at storing it, downloading it after viewing it, but as we move on, we want the data to be actionable faster. What's available real time versus not, um, and so so you you want as close to an event as possible to know is what you thought happened, what actually happened. Yes. So what do you think we overvalue and what do you think we undervalue in this realm? Sports science. Sports science. Yeah. No, I mean, I think going back to our, our complex systems discussion, it's really just because you can measure something does not necessarily make it more important than what you're not able to measure yet. Right. And so as an example, you have the, you know, within, within sports, you've got the physical, okay, are they physically doing what I think? You have the mental, what's their emotional strength? And you have their cognitive. These are all the different decisions we're asking when to pass, when to pass short, when to pass long, when to drop back, when to step up. This is our shape. This is where I should be in relation to the people around me. Like there's a certain cognitive load. Mm-hmm. What's undervalued or, or, or under misunderstood because we it's really hard to quantify is what's what's the 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 cognitive cost of all the information that we can give to athletes we know how much they run yeah and you might know like a lot of times the guy that runs the fastest or runs the most or does that has no necessarily like association with that's the best guy now he could be running really fast in the wrong direction yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so or to the restroom whatever yeah, so so it's really we are we are undervaluing the whole cognitive side because we're really as much as we're able to really better measure what's going on physically, we're not really able to measure what's happening cognitively. So have you hooked up with Elon Musk yet for his Neuralink stuff? <laughs> not yet. Not He's yet. here in Austin, I think, so a lot of times. I'm with you. Um, that's what I found really interesting about the Omega Wave, like the DC yeah. potential stuff. Um, I don't know if I told you, but I'm helping support four vets that are going to be rowing three thousand nautical oh. miles from uh, Spain to Antigua. It's called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. It's the biggest, most difficult open ocean row in the world. Wow. And less people have accomplished this than have uh, gone to uh, summit at Everest. And um, these are some tough, tough individuals. But as we've been collecting data on them, it's really interesting to see like from a DC potential standpoint, yeah. which is like how the brain is adapting to stress. Like it honestly doesn't really matter 
because the cognitive load isn't really high. Yeah. But like if we were to ask them to do complex systems things, like if they were like in an open field environment, like in soccer, yeah. the cognitive load is very high. Yeah. Do you still measure any of that stuff? How are you looking at? Yeah. I mean, we're, we are using Omega Wave technology because okay. I do think it gives us a sense of the the long-term response to to stressors. Yeah. Right. And if, uh, and let's say you have a player who's having problems with a girlfriend and then doesn't sleep and then comes in and then we have a video session and we have a really heavy tactical session where it's all little details of how we want to play against the next opponent. It's really easy for that guy to be overloaded really quickly. Right. The day's so, lost almost. Yeah. And, and so, or maybe he's able to take it in today, but then tomorrow he's, trash right so mm-hmm. it's really using you know an omega wave te- technology eeg to really measure what sort of state of stress anxiety is this guy in mm-hmm. um and again it's always you can always look at okay when a guy's fatigued but we're also you know we're talking about cognitive load and then and then fatigue based on cognitive load we're not really talking about ability to process information either and mm-hmm. ability to learn um, who processes things really well and who doesn't the guy, you know, the, the special going back to your coaches, you can say the same thing about the athletes, like the special athletes are the ones that seem to take in a lot of information and then make that right decision at the right time. Mm-hmm. Right. As well as having physical ability. I still don't know if we've found the best way to measure that, you know, kind of as well, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to pick who the next best NFL quarterback is going to be. Right. Because again, from a cognitive perspective, there's very few positions in any sport that has as much cognitive information coming in. And that guy has to make that right decision at the right time. Yeah. I've, I've learned about some tests that you can give for perceptual IQ, yep. which we I, I was able to use back when I was at the Texans. And that was an eye opener. Yep. Uh, like shooters in the military will take that stuff. But it's like you just got to layer on this stuff. Yeah make your best decision and then go back and assess like, how did that turn out? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is the next realm. And I think it's going to get really gnarly in the next 10 years. Yeah. Especially as you talked about, like, how can we do this without messing with the athlete or the consumer? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like in baseball now. I mean, there's a lot of cognitive testing and training, you know, within, within baseball and, you know, trying to find the next top, talented guys that, you know, might be taken off. And, uh, and so from a testing perspective, we're doing a, I think a a decent assessment job, Mm -hmm. but then it comes to, um, training and improving. Right. And a lot of them are trying to use VR goggles to do stuff. And again, that's, that's, is there association between VR goggle training, Mm -hmm trying to hit bouncing balls and VR goggles and then going on the field and actually hitting a ball better. Yeah. That's very interesting. So we talked about what high performance means, but what is a high performer to you? Like, is there a difference? No, I think it's about what we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's someone that can make the, the right decision at the right time in the right way. You know, to me, that's, that's someone that's, a high performer mm-hmm. um, and is able to do that over and over and over. You know, I think, you know, and again, going back to the NBA experience, what would really impacted me a lot in the NBA was these top high performers 
performers in the NBA, how they could literally do it four days a week for seven months. It's crazy. Uh, and not let down. What I thought was interesting about what you just said is you were talking about mental. Yeah. You didn't say anything about bigger, faster, stronger. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's a whole other conversation. So what habits or practices have you adopted personally so that you can consistently perform at your best? Everything in recently has been around mental health and mm-hmm. understanding the stress and anxiety we place on us. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have a great family and great kids. And, you know, I think being able to spend time around family and, and understand when we have to unplug, right? Understand when you, you can't have it switched on all the time. And I think that's one of the things that's, you know, endemic in pro sports is, you know, especially with the coaching staffs and, you know, you, you've been there in the NFL where it's, it's the grind. It's like embracing the grind, embracing the suck. And, you know, it's, it's funny, like in the NBA, there's the phrase of the fake hustle and how many guys want to look busy and want to do stuff all the time when it's not really productive. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to me, it's about building the right habits in of like, when do, when do I focus on recovery in particular mental recovery? Um, when do I unplug from the stress and anxiety that's coming at us all the time and learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's, there's an experience level as well, right? When you're younger, you take things personally, right? When you're younger, you worry about stuff you you can't control as much. And I think as you get older, developing good habits around um, knowing when to shut things down, knowing when not take things personally, uh, knowing when there are certain areas that are out of your control and allowing them not to affect you, I think is, is most important. It's a lot of wisdom there. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom yeah. wisdom. A lot comes a lot of times comes out over, over time. What are you doing right now to invest in your personal growth? I mean, you're doing this yeah. PhD route. Is there anything else you're reading about? I mean, you're always a guy that has always read a book or two. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> like, you know, you've done these presentations in the past and every time I walked away, I was like, Oh, I gotta go read that. What are you reading right now? A lot of research, <laughs> one, and uh, it's funny. There's there's a there's a book called Complex Football by a guy Javier Mayo, and it's basically understanding soccer through complex systems and the and the way to train through complex systems. And they use tactical periodization, which is from Portugal, mm-hmm. and then the thing called structured training from from Barcelona, which has been you know, uh, you know two of the top revolutionary places of soccer training in the last decade. And it's all purely through complex systems um, and understanding. And again, this goes back to the point of some of the best soccer players of all time were slow and small when they're younger and they had to be right. Cause if they're fast and athletic at nine, they learn how to problem solve by using their speed and athleticism. And that affects again, downstream their ability to think and problem solve within the game. If you can solve all problems athletically when you're young um, and, you know, and then understanding the training process, you know, kind of around that. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I guess, you know, most of my reading has been around, you know, kind of complex systems. Uh, there's a group in Australia, Sam Roberts and Carl Woods, guys like that have done a whole series of, of sports science and leadership papers on complex systems. It's really, really interesting. Hmm. Most of my reading revolves around the podcast. <laughs> if you had a book, I would have read it in preparation. Um, 
Man, this is fantastic. This is really great getting to catch up with you now that you're in the great state of Texas. I hope mm-hmm. we never leave you. You know, we, <laughs> we never, you never leave because this is a great place. I'm glad that you're here and I'm just down the street in Houston. That's great. But uh, thank you for coming on today. This is fantastic. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support the blueprint by leaving a review in the Apple podcast app. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all of our other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home online at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.